Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes. It's easy to find. If you got the, it's in the Old Testament. If you can find the Psalms, the next book is Proverbs, and the next book is Ecclesiastes. We're going to pick up our study in, in chapter 4 in just a moment. Remind you that this is a poetic book, and so it doesn't always say things directly. Sometimes it says them indirectly in a poetic kind of way, rhetorical kind of way. And um, written by Solomon, but I'll remind you, though it was written by Solomon, humanly speaking, God inspired this. This is God's word as much as John 3.16. And uh, this is God speaking to, to us as believers, speaking to mankind, and letting us know where to find our purpose, peace in life, meaning in life. Well, we're going to come to chapter 4, so hold your place there. Turn back over to chapter 1 for a minute. We've got to read those first three verses because it gives us the setting. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity means emptiness, vainglory, meaninglessness. Uh, it, it means meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. He's talking about all of life, as we know from the rest of the chapter. All of life is meaningless. But then we have this important clause in verse 3. What profit hath a man of all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? Now the word vanity is used 38 times meaning emptiness, nothingness, nothing of worth. <clears throat> but the term under the sun is used 27 times, and then three times it says under heaven. So the idea is if you just live for things that are under the sun, if you just live as though God does not exist here on earth, everything is meaningless, everything is empty, everything is worthless. If you don't incorporate what's Above the sun, that is God himself, the creator who created us for himself. And, and when you incorporate him, then, then everything uh, comes to ha can, can have meaning. All the things in life can have wonderful meaning and purpose. Under the sun is Solomon's poetic way of saying, without God. Everything's meaningless without God. Without knowing him and walking with him. Him, so there's the uh, there's the uh, key and the and the theme. Now we come over to chapter four, and look at verse one. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are under the sun. There's the phrase, and be and behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there was power. Military power, political power, financial power on the side of the, of the oppressors. But on the side of the oppressed, he repeats again, but they had no comforter. That is, the oppressed had no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. He says, it's, when I thought about it and looked at it, I was so overwhelmed. I just, I, I just was, was thankful for people who had died, they were better off 
than the people who are living through this. Verse 3 says, Yea, better is he than both they, they spoke of in verse 2, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, or that is, hadn't yet been born. He says, better yet, not only is it better to be dead than alive with this kind of uh, oppression, but it's also the best thing is just not to be born at all. And then he says, who hath not seen, that is the one who is not born yet, he hasn't seen the evil work that is done under the sun. There's our phrase again, under the sun. Father, speak to us now through your word. Help us to find real purpose and meaning in life. Real peace and contentment in life. Uh, and may we not live just under the sun, but may we live in communion with you. We ask in Christ's name, amen, amen. I recently came across an article about a young lady whose name was Lana. Lana grew up in, in Egypt, was born there and grew up there. She was, grew up in a religious Muslim home. And she was taught by her family to despise Christianity and to despise Christians. And, uh, and so she did. When she was 19 years old, a friend of hers asked her to listen to a radio broadcast. That radio broadcast shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she was moved by that, and she began to wonder if Jesus really was God who came in the flesh and the Savior of all mankind instead of just a... A, a preacher, as the Muslims would teach, a prophet, a teacher. And so she found a Bible, got a Bible from someone, hid it from her parents. Uh-oh, I'm falling apart. She hid it from her parents and, uh, and began to read the Bible. Eventually, she became convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of mankind, the only Savior. And coming to that conclusion, she trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Heart was flooded with forgiveness and joy, and that was a wonderful thing. But on the flip side, it was not such a wonderful day because when she told her parents, they were outraged. They scolded her. Her father beat her. Her own family attacked her. All of this to try to get her to renounce Jesus as her Savior. She refused to renounce, so the persecution got worse. And she was not allowed to eat at the table with the rest of the family because she was considered beneath them and unclean. And uh, she had to eat elsewhere. She still would not recant. And so... They uh, finally kicked her out of the house. 19 years old, nowhere to live, living on the street. You would think out of the home, the persecution from the family would stop, but it did not because some of the family kidnapped her and beat her so severely that her bones were broken all over her body and they dumped her in a dirty alleyway unconscious 
and broken all to pieces. Can you imagine living in that? What oppression that is. But that's only one person. According to Open Doors Ministry, confirmed by other ministries, there's 245 million people worldwide every year that suffer what they call, quote, high levels of persecution. Like Lana. What Lana went through is only one of 245 million just last year. By defining high levels of persecution, they talked about arrest, imprisonment, kicked out of the house, beaten, tortured, beheaded, raped. 145 million. When you first read what Solomon read, it seems a little overstated. Better to be alive than to go through that. But when you really look at the oppression that he looked at and that we could look at in our day, when you really see that oppression, you begin to understand how overwhelmed he felt. How he felt like there was nothing he could do. It is so widespread. Even as the king, there was nothing he could do to stop the oppression. And he felt overwhelmed by it. And saying, in some cases, better not to have been born than to go through the suffering that some people have to go through. The Bible talks a lot about oppression in the Old Testament. For instance, Amos says that uh, uh, people oppress the poor. Then he said they crush the needy, that is the powerful folk, like our text speaks of. Ezekiel warned about extortion and stealing and people being taken advantage of. Zechariah listed the people who are most likely to be oppressed, widows, orphans, travelers, and the poor. Not to mention things that go on in people's homes, like women abused by their husbands, children abused by their parents. When you look at that, it It's overwhelming. The oppressed and no one to comfort them, no one to come alongside and help them. Then you look worldwide and you see things like genocide, terrorism, slavery, sex trafficking. Sex trafficking. It's kind of unbelievable when you begin to look at those figures and stats all the people who are kidnapped and so forth and sold. Who buys, who buys children? Apparently there's a lot of rich people around the world who buy children. It's horrendous. It's overwhelming. What can we do? It's so widespread we can't do anything to stop it. And so, and so even if you're a king like, like uh, Solomon... It's, it's an overwhelming when you look at the oppression that goes on in the world today. Let's go back now and look at, with that said, let's look at what he said. I think it'll make more sense to us and we'll, we'll, fit, we'll feel it, we'll sense it. 
He says, so I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears. Can you see Lana crying herself to sleep at night? Can you see her tears? Can you see the tears of the 245 million? He says, I saw their tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power, political power, money, financial power, military power. But, as far as the oppressed are concerned, but they had no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead, which were already dead, more than the living which were yet alive. I said to myself, that is, Solomon said to himself, it seems to me, I'm so over, it seems to me these people would be better off dead than going through this kind of oppression. And then he thinks of even a better thing. He thinks that best of all, in verse 3, he says, better if they were never born than to be going through all of this evil. Verse 3, under the sun. See the word seen there? The word seen means just what the way we use it to see something with the eye, but sometimes it also carries the idea of experiencing something. We use it that way ourselves, by the way. We might say something like this uh, I've seen a lot of trouble in my day. Now, you don't mean necessarily you saw it with your eye, you mean you've experienced a lot of trouble, you've been through a lot of trouble. That's the way this word. This Hebrew word can be translated. And so it's the idea of seeing it and experiencing it. It's better, you're better off not to have been born than to experience this kind of terrible oppression. And all of it, of course, under the sun. So we see the vanity of oppression and even despondency. But we see the value of comfort. Look back at your screen for a moment. Let me give you an outline of the whole chapter right quick. Here, here's the way I would outline the chapter. I see vanity and I see value in, uh, in, in this chapter in several divisions. First, the verses we've just read, we see the vanity of oppression and despair. Even despairing over it, like he said. Even despairing of life. That doesn't do any good. That doesn't change anything. That's vanity in itself. That's meaningless in itself to be despaired over it. If there's something we can do, then do it. And so we have the vanity of oppression and despair, but we have the value of comfort. Somebody could have come along and comforted the people in this story. He said, he said twice for emphasis sake and in a, poet, in a poetic way. The oppressed had no one to comfort them. They had no one to comfort them. Maybe you know somebody's going through a hard time. A difficult time. And you can be a comfort to them. Maybe you could take them some soup over to the house. Or maybe you can take them out to eat. Or maybe you could, you could fix a meal. Or, or, or maybe you could go by and sit and chat or visit with someone who's going through difficult times. There's personal, personal oppressions too. Like alcohol and, and drugs and pornography and things like that. that are a sin that oppresses our generation. Be a comfort, to, be a help to somebody. Come alongside someone and help them. 
there's value in that. And then the, the second section, if you keep looking at your screen for a moment, the vanity of greed and envy and the value of contentment. Then we have the vanity of loneliness and solitude and the value of companionship. And then we have the vanity of achievement and, and popularity and the value of wisdom. Now, with that said, come to verse 4. We're going to make our way through this, uh, this passage. He says, again, I consider, he's changing the subject now. He's going to talk about work. Again, I consider all the travail and every right work that for this man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. In the English Bible, it's hard to understand exactly what that envy, who's envying who there. But in the Hebrew, it's a little more clear in that it looks as though it's talking about the person working envies his neighbor. In other words, this first person, we're going to see four people in this section about work. This person, what motivates him is envy, greed. He wants, to, he wants to have a bigger house than his neighbor or a bigger house than his parents had or more money than somebody else, more prestige and so forth. This is what motivates him to work is envy and greed, wanting to get a, not only keep up with the Joneses, but get ahead of the Joneses and, and you know, leave the Joneses in, in your dust. That's the idea of this man here. He's the first of four men... He's going to use as an example. And the first one here is motivated by envy. Now, there are good motives for work. The Bible says we should work. And we should work as though it's to the Lord. Uh, and we should uh, work to take care of our families. And all of that's wonderful and good. Those are good motives. But greed and envy are motives that are vanity. And vexation of spirit. Remember the term vexation of spirit? It means frustration of soul. We have, in our day in America, we have so many frustrated people, don't we? People are just frustrated. That's what this means, frustration of soul or heart. And if you remember the, the root words in the Hebrew means reaching after or trying to catch the wind. <laughs> you know how frustrating that is? Try to catch the wind. You can do it your whole life and you never do it. It's empty and meaningless. So this first man is empty and meaningless in that his, his motive is wrong in his work. And then he talks about a second man in verse 5. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Now remember, this is poetic language. He doesn't eat his own flesh literally. But it's like he's killing himself because he's not willing to work. This is the man to the other extreme. He will not work. And the, the, the Bible in the book of Proverbs says a lot about being lazy and about not working, condemning that. And this follows, of course, that idea in the book of Proverbs, that this man is, is causing his own ruin because he's not willing to work. The New Testament says it like this, if a man's not willing to work, he should not eat. So if somebody's not willing to work, we're not even supposed to help them eat. Wow. Now, there are many exceptions to that. Some people, of course, uh, 
uh, because of physical problems, they can't work and they should be helped. Some people are between jobs and they're looking for a job, but they don't have a job right now and they have no income. Those people should be helped. And there are many other exceptions as well. But this man is destroying his own life by his attitude he will, because he will not work. We come to the third man in verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now here's a man that seems to have found balance. Notice that word quietness. Zodiates translates that Hebrew word rest, calmness, freedom from strife. A synonym might be peace, or the synonym I used for my outline was contentment. Here's a man who's learned to be content. He doesn't have both hands full of, of goods. He's just got one hand, enough to feed him, he and his family, enough to take care of his family, and the other hand's free to do other things. And he has quietness, peace, contentment. He's learned to be content with such things as he has. Remember, the New Testament tells us, be content. If you've got something to eat and a roof over your head, be content with what you have. Be thankful for what you have. This man's found that good balance, contentment, and yet he works hard. He's got a handful, enough to take care of his family. And then we come to the th third man, uh, the fourth man, I'm sorry, verse 7 and 8, the fourth man. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end to all of his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. He's working himself to death. And yet he's not satisfied with all of his riches. Uh, neither saith he, that is, he, he never really asked the deep questions of life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? He's just, he's just like on a treadmill, working, 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 gaining more and more and more, and no purpose in life and no one to share it with. Notice, he, he neither saith he, this is what he doesn't say, for whom do I labor? And bereave my soul of all this good. This is also vanity, yea, and sore travail. This is very troubling. This is very heartbreaking. Troubling. Here's a man who is alone, lives in solitude. Now, I use this term solitude in my outline, but there's nothing wrong with solitude in itself. We need Everybody needs a little bit of solitude, and some people need more solitude than others. But some people try to live in solitude. That's this fellow. He doesn't need anybody else. He's independent. He can get it done by himself. You can, you can apply this to business uh, or to uh, family and so forth. Here's a man who maybe, you and I have seen people like this, the reason he doesn't have a brother or a father or a son or anybody around him to help him to share his life is because he's driven them away with his anger, with his alcohol, with his drugs, 
with his attitude, he's driven his family away, and he's by himself, working, working, gathering, gathering, but no purpose, no joy in all of life. Now, sometimes it's not that people have driven their family away. Maybe they've outlived their family. Maybe they, their family has passed away. If you know somebody like that, it's not their fault. We ought to pay them a visit, go by and see them, give them a call and so forth, and uh, try to be a companion, try to be a friend in that sense. And so here's a man who doesn't want to share. He also, you know, he doesn't have a partner in business either. No one. He doesn't want to share his money with anybody. He wants to make his own money and keep it to himself and not share it with anybody else. Here's a solitary, independent man. Nothing wrong with being independent if you use it, the word in the right way. Independent people who are dependent on the Lord, uh, being dependent on the Lord is what makes life worth living. And so he's not satisfied with what he has. He never asks the deep questions about what life is all about. So we have four individuals. The one in the middle there, the third one, he's the one who has the balance. He's found contentment, and yet he works. He has one handful instead of two. He's not worried. He's not working just for money, and he has contentment and peace in his life. And then this last fella who works alone, prompts Solomon to talk about the benefit of two. So in verse 9, he begins to talk about the benefit of companionship and the vanity of going it alone. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Now, you can apply these next verses to uh, family, friends, uh, uh, to marriage, and to the Lord as well. So the application, many ways here, but in those four ways in particular. So he says, two are better than one because they have good reward of their labor. Now here's the, here's the idea, I think. If, you ha if this man had a partner, they would, and they were running a little business, they would have the same overhead as one person, but they had the labor of two. So they could do twice as much work and bring it in, but only had one overhead so that their reward would be better. It's true in a family, a family who shares the responsibilities of life and so forth. Uh, and in a marriage, that applies. You have good reward for the two. It's, if you want to put it like this, it's cheaper to live... Uh, two people living together and two incomes coming in than it is for both of you to live in a different house. Uh, and so in that sense, and keep up two houses, and in that sense, the reward, the financial gain is better. But there's more to it than that. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. This be true of family members. We help each other up. It's true of friendship. Friends help each other up. It's true of marriage, of course. We help each other up. And then he says in verse 11, Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But now, one, uh, but how can one uh, be warmed alone? Now, this, uh, this obviously applies to the marriage bed. Uh, husband and wife keep each other warm physically, emotionally, spiritually, and so forth. 
But there were times in ancient uh, biblical days when travelers would sometimes sleep together because the... Uh, because it was cold and they might be sleeping out under the stars and two brothers or a, a, a father and a son or, or again two sisters they might sleep with their backs to each other and they help warm each other up and so again two is better than one and then the next verse says and if one prevail against him then uh, the, uh, two shall withstand him that is an enemy if an enemy comes against these two he might have prevailed against one, but the two can fight him off. Now, suppose they were traveling in the Middle East, and, uh, and a, uh, uh, a robber comes along, a bandit comes along, and he tries to attack them. They have a better chance of fighting him off if there's two of them. But in the spiritual sense, you have a better chance of fighting off the enemy of our soul. That is Satan himself. He's our enemy. We have a better chance of fighting him off if we have a friend who's praying with us and helping us or a husband or a wife or a family member and we're serving the Lord together and we're picking each other up and praying for one another. So, he says, you can withstand better. And then he says... And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he spoke of one, verse 8. The next verses he speaks of two. Now he speaks of three. Obviously, in the spiritual sense, this would be the Lord. Two people in business, their business partners, how much better if they turn their business over to the Lordship of Christ and let Him bring His strength into that business, into a friendship, the same thing into a marriage maybe most important of all when a husband and a wife both yield themselves to the lordship of Christ and to uh, and their yield their marriage to the lordship of Christ he brings his strength into that union and a threefold cord is not easily broken Solomon's giving us some wonderful advice i have to move quickly now this is the last section and uh, it says Better is a poor and wise child. Now, that word child can be translated youth and often is translated youth in the King James. Um, it doesn't mean a, a little child, in other words. It means a child who is closer to the uh, to age of youth. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. And so he first compares... Wisdom with foolishness. You're better to be a, a young person with wisdom than you are to be a king who has great riches and great political power and all of that, and, and you're foolish. Better off to be young and poor. Now, that's God's word. Better off to be young and poor than old and rich with power in many ways, like a king. And then he says, this king who will no more be admonished. That is, he won't listen to counsel anymore. He's got to the place where he never learns anything. He never listens to anybody else. Now, that's not only true of kings. That can be true of all of us, any of us. We get to the place in our Christian life where we think we've heard... We've heard so much preaching over the years, or in my case, I've done so much preaching over the years. We think we, we think we know it all. We don't listen to anybody else. We don't seek counsel from anybody else and their wisdom. We become stagnant 
And we can become foolish by not learning, growing, maturing. That's the way this king was. He quit maturing. He quit growing. He quit learning from others. And so he lost his throne. Verse 14 says, For out of prison he cometh to reign. That is that young, poor, wise child. Out of prison he cometh to reign. Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. One person becomes poor who might have been rich. But this guy is becoming rich who once was poor. Now he's the king himself. Now, this is hypothetical, of course. We're not talking about any real people here. This is hypothetical. It could apply to all of us. None of us are kings, but we all have jobs, and, and, uh, and we might get promotions, and we might be popular. Some of you might be really popular on Facebook or something like that. You know, you got 10 million hits or whatever. Um, but what God is going to say is all of that's vanity because eventually... You're going to get older and a little more out of touch with the young generation. And when you do, you're only going to have five million hits. And uh, before you know it, all the young whippersnappers growing up, they've got, a, you know, they've got 50 million hits and so forth. Uh, and the same is true in business. You get a promotion on your job. But eventually, you get too old to do that job. Some young whippersnapper comes up and they're doing your job. You're sitting on the sideline somewhere and not making any money. That's the idea here. Achievement is vanity. Popularity is vanity. Notice how the rest of this story goes, this hypothetical story. Verse 15. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child. Okay, here's a second youth that shall stand up in his stead. Uh-oh. The young guy takes the throne now, he gets older. Maybe he quits listening to good advice himself. But he gets older, and some, a, a second youth stands up in his place now. <laughs> the new king's kicked out. There's, a, there's another king. I mean, that's the cycle of life, isn't it? And, uh, and he says, uh, there is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them, they also that come after shall not rejoice in him. That is, they, he's not going to be popular with a young crowd growing up. And, uh, and eventually he'll be replaced. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. <clears throat> I think this is what God is saying to us in this last little section. If you hang your purpose in life, if you hang your peace and contentment in purpose on your job, on your achievements, on your popularity. It might give you some satisfaction temporarily, but eventually those things pass away. And you end up retired and scraping by. <laughs> and all of that which gave your life meaning is gone. But if you find your meaning in Christ... If you find your purpose in life, loving Him and serving Him, then you can have joy and contentment and peace. And you may have a good job and a, and a lot of money coming in. Nothing wrong with that in itself. And you can rejoice in those things. And then when you're put out to pasture, you can, you can still have joy and peace and contentment and meaning and purpose because you found it in Christ. And He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
I told you about Lana, eight, 19-year-old, grew up in Egypt, grew up in a Muslim home, came to Christ, suffered all that great persecution, oppression that when you and I think about it, we can't hardly comprehend the tragedy of it. But she testified that in the midst of her oppression, she did have a comforter. And that comforter was Christ himself. Now, under the sun, people have no comforter when they're oppressed. But if you know the living God, he stands with you in those difficult times. And he did with Lana. And she found contentment. She found his calmness and peace even in the midst of this terrible oppression. She writes, and I'm quoting Lana now, she writes, I'm in real danger, but I trust God because He is alive. (laughs) She said, my comfort is that it is only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with Him in heaven. Think about that. You know, that's really what Paul said when he said that the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in him. She said, we know there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. This is our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Lana found that comfort that that first section talked about the contentment that second section talked about she found the companionship that that third section talked about and she found wisdom that the fourth one talked about bow with me please with our heads bowed maybe you'd say preacher I I know I'm saved no doubt about that but I want you to pray for me because I want to find in my life contentment and companionship comfort and so forth and I, and I want in my life to be able to, to help others and touch other people and help them find comfort and companionship as well that's what I want for my life pray for me if that's your prayer would you slip your hand up today all over the building yes my hand's up as well you may put your hands down God bless you each one maybe you'd say this preacher I'm not saved I've never trusted Christ and Christ alone is my savior pray for me no one will come to you or embarrass you I would like to pray for you, though. Would you slip your hand up and hold it up long enough for me to see it? I'm looking around the room. Hold it up long enough for me to see it. Anyone? All right. Father, thank you for our time together. You've seen our hands. You know how we get sidetracked in life so often on things, busy activities. Help us to find our real purpose and peace and contentment in you because that'll last us through the good times and the hard times, right on into heaven. Teach us that. May we incorporate these truths into our daily lives. Thank you for your book. Thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes, 3,000 years old, and you're still teaching your people how to live and find meaning, find peace. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, please. Words are on the screen. We're going to 